Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's going to be a heavy bad one episode. Yeah, bad it. <laughs> Let's all buckle our seatbelts and see if we make it through. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 31st. No, it's not. It's June <laughs> something else. What is it? June 7th, Six, seven. 2018. The drinking the in the I, morning episode. The I beg my pardon edition. I'm David Fonts of Atlas Obscure. We're weirdly giddy. I don't know why. I'm not even in a good mood. We weren't, like two minutes ago, we were not that's, this way. That's the smiling Emily Bazelon in New Haven, and then there was... Uh, John Dickerson in New York of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. On this week's GapFest, President Trump's latest extraordinary claim that he can pardon himself and other legal shenanigans of the week. Then how big a deal is the masterpiece cake shop ruling from the Supreme Court? Then could former President Bill Clinton please shut up? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and... Before we get started, a reminder that we have a live show coming up in Philadelphia on July 18th on a Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. at slate.com slash live to get tickets. It's at the Keswick Theater in Glenside. We're hoping to have a really great guest, which I thought we could announce today, but we don't uh, have that guest ready to announce, but hopefully next week. (laughs) So, uh, but I guarantee you there'll be a great guest. So come and join us in Philly on July 18th. We'd love to see you. Slate.com slash live for tickets. President Trump, who loves nothing so much as the imperial powers that the presidency has, he asserted several emphatically this week. In an early 2018 letter to Robert Mueller, the president's lawyers had asserted that he could not obstruct justice because essentially he is justice, that since he supervises the Department of Justice, he has absolute unitary power to start and stop any investigation for any reason, and therefore he could not possibly obstruct any investigation. Later on Twitter, he asserted with um, supreme confidence that he has the right to pardon himself and that constitutional scholars agree with this. This occurred against the backdrop of other uh, interesting Mueller developments, the uh, Mueller asking Paul Manafort's bail to be, well, I I wasn't exactly sure what he was asking. It was house arrest was supposed to house arrest to continue because because Manafort uh, is accused of tampering with witnesses against him. And also against the backdrop of the president pardoning Dinesh D'Souza and hinting at other pardons of celebrities convicted of crimes similar to those Mueller is investigating. So, Emily, let's start with the the two astonishing claims about the power of the president that the president made. What is the consensus about how true those claims are? Does the president have those powers? Is is does the president? Uh, have absolute power over all Department of Justice investigations and thus cannot obstruct them? And does he have the power to pardon himself? The consensus is that we don't know the answer, that these are unsettled questions under American law in the formal sense the Supreme Court hasn't resolved them. I think we all thought that we knew the answers politically, that a president would not dare to even broach the topic of doing such things, that because it presents the president as being above the law, that no president would want to put himself in the political position of courting this question, at least since Watergate, and we didn't have to worry about it. But now, of course, it's front and center. And I think what we're seeing is Trump quite successfully controlling or at least trying to control the terms of the debate and making the question about what is legal and what is like clearly the law versus what his behavior obviously should be under any set of norms that we would want to live by. Um, I mean, one of the more amazing developments in my mind was later in the week, Paul Ryan said that he didn't believe in these allegations that Trump's been brooding about, that the FBI spied on his campaign. And both he and McConnell have taken the position that 
Obviously, the president wouldn't pardon himself as this way of like pretending there isn't a real controversy. But anyway, what amazed I mean, so so Ryan, I think, was showing a little spine. And then um, Matt Goetz, a freshman Republican congressman, immediately went on Fox and excoriated Ryan and talked about removing him from the leadership. And so there's an argument going on within the Republican Party about whether the party stands for Trump pure Trump or for rule of law principles that are broader than that. And it's pretty astonishing that um, that would be the response to Ryan, yep. I think. I, I, I'm, I'm going to um, try and separate those two things because I think, Emily, you can tell me if I'm crazy about this, but um, the the debate about the unitary executive has at least some um, – scholarly adherence they people may argue that they're right or wrong but there is a the, there is this theory and and jay Sekulow has been offering that theory since the nanosecond the whole comey thing or the whole comey question and the and the and the debate over what was said or wasn't said on the 14th of february in the oval office the minute that came out Sekulow was pointing to this notion of the unitary executive and the fact that the president can fire anybody he wants who is investigating something within the executive branch because he's the executive. So that's that. The what's the idea, not the fact. Right, right. right. The, the idea, idea. That's the theory. The idea is, okay. is has some. Again, you may not agree with it, but it has some uh, group of adherents who have law degrees and and read the Constitution that way. What I think is important about what Paul Ryan said um, about this. Um, what the president was calling a spy, other people were calling an informant, but which seems to be a complete fabrication, um, is not only has Ryan seen uh, some of the information, the president has not, but Ryan as a part of the Gang of Eight was given um, access. Trey Gowdy saw this information from the FBI and both said there that what the president asserted, again, the president hadn't looked at it. He was just basing it on, um, well, who knows what he was basing it on, but he was not basing it on <laughs> the facts. Um, asserted something that just that is that is untrue, and so Ryan has said this is untrue. Trey Gowdy, um, you know, the chairman of the Government and Oversight Committee, has said that not only is there no no evidence of what the president was claiming, but that in his estimation, what the FBI was doing with respect to this specific informant was looking into whether the Russians had tried to meddle in the election, which Trey Gowdy said on CBS this morning, um, was in fact doing exactly what President Trump had supposedly said he wanted in one of his conversations with James Comey, which is that he wanted, if there was any evidence of anybody doing anything in his campaign with respect to the Russians, he wanted it investigated. McConnell looked at the same information and said he had full faith in Mueller's investigation. This is three leaders on the Republican side in Congress all saying that the, this assertion the president made is totally untrue. Didn't Richard Burr throw in his lot with them too, the Republican I, head of the... I hadn't seen that, but that seems consistent with his behavior. So on the one hand, you have a, a, a debatable point. On the other, you have a, a what has been uncovered as a fiction, a fiction brought into the consciousness not by anybody other than the president, now that's been knocked down by three or four big leaders that's a big deal. So back to the question of the unitary executive, Emily, is it in the Starr case with Clinton, was it he couldn't assert this even if he wanted to because Starr was appointed by the judicial branch based on a legislative a piece of legislation, right? So you so it was outside the executive. Is that why Clinton could never have claimed this? Yes, it is true that at the time of the Starr appointment, we had the Special Counsel Act, which came out of Watergate, which created um, a three-judge panel that appointed special counsels. And so they were still kind of partly in the executive branch in the Justice Department, but they kind of had one foot out of it. Um, and there are all these questions about whether that arrangement was constitutional. Mm -hmm. um, this arrangement was the one we devolved to after members of Congress, past administrations, got tired of special counsels and started seeing them as like these creatures run amok who were just causing a lot of distraction. So Mueller is, has both feet planted in the executive branch in the Justice Department. And yes, that is why this theory that of the unitary executive, by which I think you mean that the president sort of because he can hire and fire everyone in the executive branch, he controls everything. That's where it comes mm -hmm. from. The problem with Trump's 
theory of I can do whatever I want is that it assumes he can do whatever he wants no matter what his intention is. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing a kind of dismissal of all the parts of the statutes that talk about corrupt intent. Like if you're trying to block an investigation of your own campaign, of your own family members, of yourself, that's not a reason we would want you to be exercising this hire and fire authority. And there is certainly a tension there. It's really hard for me to believe that um, the Supreme Court would come down on the side of, you know, the Giuliani hypothetical, Trump can shoot James Comey and he has to be impeached by Congress before he can be indicted. Like that just it's so um, it was, I thought, usefully and clarifyingly extreme. There's just something wrong with that. We shouldn't want that to be the answer, that a political consequence of impeachment has to come before any kind of criminal consequence for an obvious crime. But doesn't this all go back to, to what I continue to believe is the fundamental crisis in American politics, which is that you have a Congress which has extraordinary powers to investigate and pursue and punish uh, members of the executive branch who misbehave, including the president and members of the judicial branch, because impeachment is available as this um, as this method of control and investigation and monitoring, and that Congress has simply abdicated its responsibility. And then in that into that vacuum comes a president who's like, yeah, well, I can do what I want. But in a yeah. normal system, you would have a Congress which would say, you can try it and we're going to impeach you. Right. Or or they would threaten to and that would restrain somebody. Right. And I think what Ryan and McConnell and Trey Gowdy and Burr presumably hope was going to happen this week was that they did enough in that direction to constrain Trump. But it's not at all clear. And one of the reasons it's not at all clear is that there are lots of other members of the party, not to mention Fox News, where this all just is seen through this lens of, you know, Trump's really smart packaging of witch hunt, no collusion. I mean, we have Sean Handy on TV telling witnesses to go chop their phones up into little pieces so that Mueller can't get the contents thereof. I mean, there's just like something kind of crazy going on about seeing the Mueller investigation in such a partisan lens that you don't want to know what the answer is. Did you guys see David Korn wrote a piece in Mother Jones this week? It was sort of like the Adam Sower piece, this kind of overall framing that at least I liked that we talked about earlier. And he was just pointing out that on the side of the investigation is this like cacophony of reporting. He called it, I think, a fusillade, which is a good metaphor where it's not predictable which piece we find out when. We're like constantly trying to keep all the strings together. He had this great metaphor that it's like um, Carrie Matheson's wall and homeland, but like gone crazy. And I feel that way about the details of this investigation. On the other hand, you just have Trump every day saying witch hunt. Like, oh, that's all you need to know. And I think there is a way in which that narrative is just eroding some Americans' faith in the investigation, in the FBI, et cetera. And if you're a Trump partisan, like, that's all fine with you. You're you're down for that. I want to turn to the other grand claim, grand legal claim that the president made, which is that he had the right to pardon himself, which I think is nonsense. But that's not the real danger in what is happening with pardon is that the president has been flaunting his pardon power this week in a way that Americans should, it should make Americans want to weep. And for two reasons, one, the purpose of the part the pardon power is generally to show mercy, to correct excesses, to bind up wounds, which the president did with this one case that Alice Johnson, that, that Kim, Kim Kardashian, Kardashian cost, West brought which him. Good for Kim Kardashian, by yeah, the way, for sure. But the idea of the pardon as a treat for celebrities or ideologues aligned with the president is disgusting. And what's more disgusting is the idea that the president is dangling the possibility of pardons for all of the people associated with the Mueller investigation, for the Manaforts and the Papadopoulos and all these other people as a way of, of signaling to them to say, stay strong. It's a pure mob move. It's what the mobsters do. It's like they signal to you, you if you take this, if you stay silent, we'll take care of you. And the idea that the president is, is using the pardon power in that way is much more troubling to me than the idea that he's talking about how he could pardon himself, which is insane mm-hmm. and he won't do. 
I totally agree with you. And the other thing that's been interesting to me in watching the kind of law professor commentary on all of this, so there are lots of law professors who are troubled in all the ways we've been talking about, and it seems like Trump's actions sort of speak for themselves in terms of corrupt intent when it looks like, you know, you're sending the signals you were just talking about or your, you know, stories this week, like, yes, I told Jeff Sessions that um, I was furious with him because he did recuse himself and I tried to talk him out of that. Like, all these ways in which the actions suggest that Trump has tried to stop and block this investigation every step of the way. And then you have these sort of chin-stroking, I'm not sure about this yet, People, Jack Goldsmith of Harvard Law School, for whom I have a lot of respect, he's a former Bush Department of Justice guy, super smart. He was making the argument this week like, well, maybe the fact that it's all so blatant and brazen suggests that it's not corrupt intent, like that the president is just doing this because he thinks it's a big distraction. And that, I have to say, was driving me crazy this week because it just seems like how could you ever pass the test of corrupt intent without, you know, the literal proof of, like, Trump handing over Hillary Clinton's emails to the Russians. Like, I I just worry when it starts getting framed as we need the president actually committing a crime in order to decide that there's a problem here. Well, also, isn't the corrupt intent more relevant to the obstruction than the collusion? Yeah. And also, it seems like if you have several associates doing things that are illegal for a variety of reasons, that that also should be something that reflects back on the president in a way that Congress would care about for impeachment proceedings um, and that Mueller might care about, too. Trump has been very successful at raising the bar about what would constitute grounds for impeachment or for an indictment. I want to uh, go to turn to one other thing, John, which is in the in the in the fusillade of this week and the the art battery of new stories and new evidence and new developments was the almost passed over fact that the president's team now seems to have admitted mm-hmm. that he wrote the statement that Don Trump Jr. made following the Trump Tower meeting with Russians peddling uh, dirt about Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. And and this is something that they had, had been denied vehemently by uh, all parties to to the Trump team, all his supporters, all his uh, sp- spokespeople, I think even his lawyers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, Jay Sekulow. Right, Jay Sekulow and, and, and um, Sarah And Huckabee taking Sanders. great umbrage at the suggestion. At the, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so what do we do with that, John? So what do we do well, with the fact that, that uh, yeah. we now know that that was all lies? Well, it's a it's it's a great question. It's what I was it was what I was trying I was circling around with also the other one about claiming that there was a spy inside the campaign put there by the Obama administration that is also not true. Which also which which arguably is a more um, corrosive um, untruth because it uh, it affects the Department of Justice. It affects the FBI. This is the official word coming from. The president's lawyer and the official word, by the way, the president's lawyer and his spokesperson who spoke with the authority and either implicit or explicit authority of having talked to the president. I don't know. I don't know what you do, but it is worth sometimes stopping and taking a look. The danger is that everybody becomes so used to this that that's no longer shocking. It should be uh, really shocking. And I found it clarifying in a conversation I had with um, with Newt Gingrich this week to go back. Newt Gingrich, who, by the way, says the idea of self-pardoning is um, is not a good, a good idea and doesn't think it's... Um, he suggested he didn't think it was possible even. Um, but when you go back and look at what he said uh, in 1998, to all of the various claims that the Clinton team was trying to make to block Secret Service people from uh, testifying, all the things they were trying to do, basically, Gingrich said... There are two principles I am prepared to live and die on. The first is that the American people have the right to know about basic facts. And the second is that we are a nation under the rule of law and no person, including the president, is above the law. And that seems to me to be the basic question here um, about this investigation is that no, the president, you can you can come up with all kinds of hand waving and, and exciting readings of the Constitution. But at the bottom, the bottom line is, is the president above the law? And, and do we know the facts? And when the when the White House and the people employed by the president are actively saying things to push people away from the facts and to diminish the authority of federal officials, that's a that's a big problem. What, but do you think and I'm not asking you to speak for the current show that you host or 
to speak. Uh, but I, but I guess there's a question about whether the TV shows and radio shows that have Trump administration officials on Trump administration officials who have a history of peddling lies, mm -hmm. whether they should stop having them on. And I don't, it, I'm not sure there's a good answer to that either, but it's, it is to me troubling that it, that it's so easy for top level Trump administration officials to get on and, yeah. and to, to spew enough lies and to cause to sow enough confusion uh, that, that people interviewing them can't, they can't right. rebut every single thing. Sure. I mean, I found it very useful to have Trey Gowdy on and Newt Gingrich in order to use people who are not considered fans of the left to shape what is an agreed set of facts or at least um, bring them back closer to reality than from what we're we're hearing from the president uh, of the United States on some of these issues. You know, asking the vice president about anybody who had contacts with the Russians, getting him on the record and having video of the vice president saying there were no interactions with anybody in the administration and the Russians is a useful piece of um, videotape to have in these debates. I don't think not having them on at all is a good idea. I think you have to refresh and put on the record things that people say, not taking what they say at face value after a, a pattern of this. Um, one just has to keep that in the forefront of people's minds. I'm not sure that completely banning people from television is the right way to go. What I've been thinking about is the way in which we we give the president and his people, we give the government the benefit of the doubt that they're telling the truth. And yet increasingly, that thing is not true. And that benefit of the doubt means spreading lies inadvertently. And I don't think the press has a way to respond to that. I mean, John, what you were just saying, like, it has to be true, right? And But it relies on a marketplace of ideas theory of information mm -hmm. that you put true information out there and then that competes with the false information and it wins in well, the end. But I don't actually think we live in that universe necessarily right now, right. at least not for a significant segment of the American public. And I don't know how the press is supposed to adjust to that, like how the press comes into the White House briefing room with the assumption that it is being lied to and then proceeds from that well, assumption. Like, how would that possibly work? Well, I mean, you um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> anytime you walk into the White House briefing room, maybe lied is the, is a too strong a word. But I mean, it's obviously you, you're always going to get spin. But but Obviously, this is something um, much different that we're living, the world we're living in now. Um, I think I've noticed a contextualization of uh, official comments, certainly over the, since the beginning of this administration. Um, we don't just allow statements to go out without putting them in the um, proper context or noting that there's either contradiction by official sources or no evidence for the claim. But I think also part of it is that, you know, the press has an 18% approval rating in part and not not and that was that was the case before uh, Donald Trump was president and in part it's because of a lot of behavior that the press has engaged in over the years hyping stories that don't deserve the hype and uh, making broad claims that don't withstand the scrutiny so there are contributory parts of this that uh, that were at fault uh, for as well can I say one more thing that just last, has been astonishing? Thing. I mean, sorry, this is unrelated. I can't resist. Scott Pruitt, just amazing array of stories of like weird, petty corruption, just like junk. And yet the man is still in office. I mean, like three Scott Pruitt cycles ago, I think, David, you asked us to predict like, would he remain? And I thought, okay, he'll he'll survive that particular cycle, but the next one he'll be gone. No, no, no. It seems like it does not matter what story is published about Scott Pruitt. He just remains there. And that and we're not even talking about it. It's not even one of our three topics. Okay. Um, although we, outrageous. we should note that at least one interesting um development on the Pruitt front is the Joni Ernst, the Iowa Republican senator. Uh, and this had a little bit to do with ethanol subsidies in Iowa, but never, the, uh, never mind, that um, Joni Ernst said that Pruitt was as swampy as it gets, um, talking talking about in... Right, she said that, and yet he remains the EPA head. <laughs> well, but but isn't that... But, but Right, no. Uh, so how... let's We should come up with a fast sorting technique, which is, you know, one, yeah, that is amazing, um, especially for a president who who's arguably signature campaign... Uh, issue was draining the swamp so there's there's the acknowledgement and then there is the 
what we recognized the last time we talked about this, which is that because he pursues a certain set of policies that the president prefers and that many of the president's supporters prefers, that's why he's not in any political danger. So that's that's the answer. I just don't get it. They like approved the deputy guy like weeks ago. It was like, oh, that guy can just step in and he'll just keep doing soldiering on with all the policy work that we like so much. Anyway, it is astonishing. All right. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. And we have a Slate Plus segment today about Melania Trump. Not really about Melania Trump. She mysteriously vanished for several weeks. She's now back in the public eye. But we're going to talk about what we would do if we could vanish from our lives and how we would spend um, two or three weeks without responsibilities, without care, without uh, people expecting anything of us. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a Slate Plus member. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Masterpiece Cake Shop. Emily, go. That's so mean. Facts of the case. Nature (laughs) of the decision. This is one of the highly awaited cases of the term. Jack Phillips, a baker in Colorado, did not want to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple who came in and asked for the cake for their wedding. The couple complained to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission because Colorado has a civil rights law preventing discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The couple won at that state agency level. Jack Phillips sued, and Jack Phillips has now emerged victorious in front of the Supreme Court. Um, And yet, it's a decision that both sides saw something to celebrate in. It was seven to two. There was a lot of compromising going on. The ruling itself is very fact-specific to Colorado in a way that disappointed a lot of conservatives. So essentially, Justice Kennedy for the majority said it's absolutely clear that Colorado can protect um, gay people from discrimination. There's some nice language, um, if you're a gay rights person, about how odious um, that form of prejudice is. However, Justice Kennedy said, this Colorado Civil Rights Commission did not show sufficient respect for Jack Phillips's religious beliefs. There are a few quotes from the commissioners Kennedy pulled out. He just thought they were suspicious of religion. And that didn't mean Phillips would necessarily win below, but it meant that this particular proceeding was unfair to him. That's the way in which he won. But it suggests that if you were a civil rights commission in Colorado or another state with a case like this in front of you, if you just said nice things about religion along the way to making a finding of discrimination, that would be good enough. Kennedy certainly left the door open to that. And then Justice Kagan wrote a concurrence in which she like really invited that kind of outcome. And in some ways, I feel like the politics of this ruling are pretty good for the country. It's not going to be a big rallying cry on either side for the midterm elections. It doesn't look like a liberal Supreme Court is abusing religious people, forcing them to do anything. But on the other hand, it looks like while this certainly wasn't a clean victory for gay couples who want service for their weddings, it didn't shut the door to that either. I didn't find it all that intellectually satisfying because To me, the comments that the commissioners made about religion that Kennedy took such um, umbrage about seemed like 
they were just saying it was bad to use your religious beliefs to hurt other people. And like, that does seem like a bad use of religion. But if you're able to look beyond that, I think the majority decision sort of has something in it for everyone. Must. And I have lots more to say about Neil Gorsuch's concurrence, but I'm going to stop talking and let you guys get a word in. Well, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. But I'd like to ask this question more broadly, which is, must every decision from uh, the Supreme Court be momentous or can they just issue decisions and actually turns out it's very narrow and small and and we should move on? I'm not saying that's the case in this case. I'm just in general. It is the case in this case. And yes, there is a whole argument that this is like a good thing for the court to take a smaller role. And, you know, especially with an issue that is recent and just playing out. I mean, to me, one of the most significant sentences in the Kennedy opinion is he just says factually early on in 2012, when this dispute was happening between this baker and this couple, Colorado had not let had not yet legalized gay marriage. In other words, like, it's early days, everybody. We're all getting used to the idea the state was not even protecting this right at that point. And I think there's a way in which this decision just lets this bubble up at the state level. There are going to be lots of other cases. And and it's also just really important to remember that these cases only arise in states that have statutes that protect gay people from discrimination. There is no federal law like that. So this is only happening in places that have shown this particular kind of concern for gay rights. That makes me hopeful that these these commissions are going to be able to come to conclusions that people can live with. And then, you know, from the beginning, I think one of the responses to this case has been, look, there are not that many merchants who are refusing to serve gay people. Let the market sort of take care of this. There's a counter argument, which is like we didn't say that in the 1960s when black people were being denied service at Woolworths. We did not let people use their religious beliefs as an excuse to, you know, continue that form of racism. And it's important for businesses as places of public accommodation to be serving everyone. Well, but it's also different because it's, I mean, I think the the depth, the institutional support for that kind of racism was deeper than the institutional support for not serving gay couples in in particular ways. The establishment of Jim Crow and the kind of the, the legal and the, fa- political the deep apparatus. foundation of it mm-hmm. was, was much more profound than what exists now. Not to say that there aren't, you know, clearly wrongs being done to people. So, Emily, does this mean that two questions? First of all, so in states that don't have these civil rights protections for for gay people, that means that you have a right to get married because married because that's a federal right, but you don't have any right to you know get anyone to make you a wedding cake. Uh, or anyone to do anything, you know, provide you a service for your marriage, for your wedding. So in in those other states, in a Mississippi, say. Yeah, Yeah. like you would lose this case in Mississippi. And there are other states, I don't know if this is true of Mississippi, but remember the whole like Religious um, Freedom Restoration Act, the states were passing what are called mini rifras, these laws that showed special solicitude for religious people who had objections. So you can have the kind of reverse of Colorado's laws where a baker would be specially insulated from um, having this cake and the couple would have no right to sue. So the other big question is the so the Supreme Court avoided the First Amendment question here. They did not get to the question of whether the baker had a, a right to, to express himself in the way that he chose and to therefore to to not be forced to make a cake that would violate his his artistic uh, desires. Are we going to get a case which is going to address this First Amendment issue? Yes, I think we will. I think it will take a while. It'll kind of percolate below. Justice Thomas's dissent is all about this. He thinks this is like a straight up violation of the freedom of expression of the baker. At oral argument, this turned into one of those like angels dancing on the head of the pin problems for the Supreme Court. How do you draw the line? The lawyer for the baker memorably argued that he was a cake artist with protected rights of expression, but a makeup artist was not a real artist and could be, you know, told by the state to provide her or his services to this couple. It it just like... The lines between conduct and expression don't really exist when we're talking about this kind of service, and I don't know what the Supreme Court is ever going to figure out what to do about that. Maybe it just is unresolvable. As someone who relies on makeup artists regularly, I can tell you there is great artistry in what they do. 
<laughs> can I can I talk about the the concurrence war for a second? Yeah. So I may bungle this and it's like confusing, but there was another case in Colorado, surely like uh, deliberately um, provoked, in which another man whose last name happens to be Jax ordered a cake from three different bakers that was in the shape of a Bible and it said things on it like homosexuality is a sin. So it's like the anti-gay marriage cake. And those bakers refused to bake the cake. And those bakers, unlike Jack Phillips, won in front of the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission. So this comes up as the majority opinion as like another reason to be suspicious of this commission. Justice Kagan says about this different scenario, this is different than Jack Phillips because these bakers didn't want to bake this cake um, for anybody. This was just they were objecting to the cake, the the um, anti-gay rights message of the cake, not to the people who were ordering it. And then Justice Gorsuch says, no, no, no. This is totally equivalent because what we're, what matters is the cake had a message to Jack Phillips, the anti-gay marriage baker that was supporting gay weddings. And so he wouldn't have baked his pro-gay wedding cake for anybody either. And then Gorsuch goes down this whole, to me, it was very tangentious, but it's like very um, ardently argued passage about levels of generality and how the Colorado Commission's mistakes were just uncurable. So unlike Justice Kennedy, I think he's basically saying, if you profess religious beliefs and you don't want to do something for religious reasons, you win because we're not going to be able to really interrogate whether your religious belief is sincere or not. Like he takes at face value that this guy who ordered the Bible cake did that for religious reasons and therefore was being discriminated against on the basis of his religion. And then he says, like, well, you know, this commission, because it imputed prejudice to Jack Phillips, but not to these other bakers, is has, like, c- committed this fundamental incurable flaw and, like, you lose forever. Anyway, it was, I thought, a decision that had real implications <laughs> suggesting that Gorsuch sees this case not only in terms of not being sympathetic to gay rights, but being very sympathetic to the rights of religious people. There's this interesting piece, and now I can't remember who wrote it, by a lawyer who has spent his career dealing with abortion and the fallout for Roe, and he's a, he's a, an abortion rights supporter. And the point he made in this piece is it's incredibly, uh, it's been incredibly deadly to abortion rights to have all these little religious exemptions in the law because they they have just increased and they've gotten broader and broader and broader. So it's no longer just that if you are a, a doctor, you can't, you for religious beliefs, you can decline to perform an abortion, which is, I think, a, an exemption we can all understand. But it's gotten to the point where where if you are, uh, you know, a hospital with some religious affiliation, mm-hmm. vague religious affiliation, you can decline to have anything to do with any uh, abortion you can can decline to talk to people about it um that now it encompasses contra- contraception there's this creeping quality of religious exemption where that is so privileged that idea that if you have a religious belief it trumps every single other thing every even the the act of of sort of taking care of someone who is in in need and who 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 seeks your professional a, a advice and expertise and that's that's very disturbing that it has become so prevalent so i don't think we should insofar as the masterpiece decision is one that privileges that 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 carves out yet another religious exemption or makes it clear that that your religious um that your religious beliefs trump everything else i don't think we should be too gleeful about it I think you're talking about a piece in Slate by Louise Melling, just by the way. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The president is missing is a sentence many liberals wish were a news report. They also now 
may wish that it was applied to President Bill Clinton, who is all to President again. Bill Clinton is back. He is now a novelist. He has written this novel titled The President is Missing with James Patterson. It sounds like an absolutely terrible thriller. It is about a president named Jonathan Lincoln Duncan. And let's compare the name Jonathan Lincoln Duncan to William Jefferson Clinton. Seems familiar. But the president uh, who goes and has some thriller adventure and they're cyber terrorists. I haven't read the book. I'm not going to read the book. <laughs> James Patterson is a terrible writer. There's a very funny review. I think it maybe it, who whose review is it now? I'm completely blanking. Just just tears apart how poorly written the book is. Anyway, the president is missing has made news because of the fascinatingly disastrous book tour that Clinton and Patterson are currently engaged in, which involves interviews that quickly uh, veer from the book to Clinton's uh, place in the context of a Me Too moment. And the book tour went off the rails almost immediately when Bill Clinton went on the Today Show last week, and he really botched some questions about the Lewinsky scandal and Monica Lewinsky. It has now uh, become a part of every interview. So, John, why is this been so bad for Clinton. Clinton, we think of being so fluent, yeah. always so good, ready to answer any question. Why has he been so terrible? Well, I think in the specific case here, and you, and and I think the uh, the most interesting piece of this to me was uh, Stephen Colbert when he had Clinton on after he'd had the disastrous Today Show appearance. And Colbert, actually, for those who want to uh, look at the art of question asking, it was re- it was really well done. So he first he said, "Do you want a second shot at this?" So. That was an open invitation to get it exactly right. And what the president then said was, this wasn't my finest hour. He suggested NBC had condensed the um, his response. Um, and he said, I apologize to Monica Lewinsky then, and I apologize to her now. Uh, and he said, I paid my, you know, I've paid for it over the last 20 years. Just stopping there for a moment, I think what this demonstrates is both a specific problem with respect to the Me Too movement and also one that people attach to the past behavior of President Clinton. In the specific with respect to the Me Too movement, there seems to be an inability by anybody caught up in any of its various forms to issue what sounds like an actual apology. Um, And so everybody knows what an apology sounds like. And every time you hold something back and give a stiff apology, people know it. And that's not going to pass in this moment. And, you know, an apology is, I was wrong. So that's one thing. I was wrong, period. That's where you start. To suggest that Emmy... I deeply and sincerely apologize. I'm really sorry. I am sorry. And also, by the way, you don't talk about it being edited out or condensed. And you don't talk about how much you suffered. Because it turns out that this is about other people suffering. And, you know, I was wrong. And I'm sorry. And I caused a lot of pain that people are still feeling, which I understand. And I'm trying to learn from this as much as I have been over 20 years. Because I recognize that uh, this wrong is one that lasts more than just the moment it was in. And an apology like that, which people would recognize as an apology, would put you uh, in a place where people would see that you had grown. And instead, what people concluded was that he was basically not really sorry. And then what I think Colbert, his follow-up, was was um, pretty amazing when he basically said, you know, you don't, you don't seem... He said to Bill Clinton, who was sitting inches away from him, he said, you don't seem to understand that um, you were asked about this. but you sh- And then he, Colbert said, you are the most famous example of a powerful man sexually misbehaving at work in my lifetime. Which, as a questioner, you want to you wanna set the stakes accurately for your audience so that they can understand the context in which the interview is taking place. And, and, and Clinton's answer was not, um, didn't meet the stakes that Colbert had set for him. Clinton's answer was, look, I'm paying... Uh, and have been attacked more in my career than anybody else. I've given you a pound of flesh, and you want to. I yeah, that was very well said, John. I, and I, I yeah, that was very well said, Emily. Here's the question: Why? So so George uh, W. Bush was a disastrous president. He brought us into wars that were catastrophic for the country. He presided over an economic collapse that cost millions of people their jobs. He uh, mishandled the Katrina. But George W. Bush, he shows up anywhere. People treat him with the respect and dignity that, that anyone would want to be treated with. He's, he's honored and, and respected basically by all. 
why does Bill Clinton, who all, you know, Bill Clinton, who was a more successful president, but does have this, this mark against him. Why does Bill Clinton inspire much more irritation than Bush? I mean, I don't think the compare. First of all, I think Bush gets plenty of criticism on the left and people remember his flaws. But I also think Bill Clinton wants to be let off the hook for his serious misdeeds because he was a more successful president. And that is just not washing for people in this moment anymore. So two things struck me. And honestly, like the first just amazed me. It seemed like he was totally taken aback. Of course he was going to get this question. The notion that he didn't have a well-rehearsed, sincere-sounding apology available to him in the moment with NBC was incredible to me and suggests that he's living in complete la-la land. Like, this is going to happen to every man with any kind of Me Too baggage. And Bill Clinton had, like, the heaviest suitcase of them all. And the second is that, John, that wonderful apology you just scripted for him, I cannot imagine hearing it from him. So I was both shocked that he was unprepared and then totally unable to imagine him coming through in that moment. And it is because the Clintons, both of them, but, you know, let's focus on Bill Clinton because Hillary Clinton's issues with this, like, are lesser in my view – because we're talking about his conduct, like his defensive, brittle, I'm the one who's being persecuted um, way of thinking about any criticism of him has been one of his defining traits. And that is really irritating, especially when everyone else is being forced to confront the, you know, ill ways in which they treated women. And to make it all about him as opposed to the fact that he has never privately apologized to Monica Lewinsky was like pathetic I'm so, you know, he's been someone I've wrestled with, like, as a leader and struggled with and felt done with for a long time. And this was just, like, a reminder of the worst qualities that he had. I think liberals, and particularly liberal women, feel really guilty. Yes. They feel really guilty that they blew it the first time, that that here he he did such wrong. And they now know, with the context of 20 years later, the context of Me Too, like, oh, my God, that was really much more monstrous behavior. And and the defense. Right. Right. And the defense is a defense they would never mount today and that they're ashamed of. And so the, what do they do? They take it out on Clinton, which is But I, I don't know. Your formulation suggests there's something unfair going on. I thought Rebecca Traister made an interesting point related to this when she said that feminists have been apologizing and accounting for themselves and going through self-scrutiny and remorse for their treatment of Monica Lewinsky and excuse of Bill Clinton for the last, if not 20 years, at least like the last two or three years. And so the notion that Bill Clinton himself would think that he was above having to have um, such an accounting was particularly infuriating. Emily and John, if you'd like, do you wish that this guy would just vanish? Yes. I I wished he would would vanish. And then I remember in 2012, during Obama's reelection campaign, Clinton came back and gave a speech at the Democratic convention. You just thought, man, that guy has a way of framing issues and presenting political issues that is so persuasive when he turns it on. It was incredible. And, and so every time I think I never want to hear from this guy again, I then recall, actually, he he's better than any active Democrat at framing the issues that they care about. Or was. He used to be. Maybe he isn't anymore. I don't know if he's... That's a good reminder. I don't like presidents to disappear in any way, because even to the extent that they show themselves to be lesser than the hagiography or more than the horrible reviews they may have when they leave the office, it gives us a more complete picture of the president and presidency. And since we have this warped version of the presidency, a more complete and complex picture of it is better as far as I'm concerned. That was the grown-up answer. John is just, John is, this topic has brought out John's <laughs> more just gravitas, his presidential and gravitas. Yeah, no, I think it's my, I'm just like pissed I, off. I, I think it's my my high horseism. You know, you guys have nicely put, <laughs> you've put the step stool right in front of me. You've given me some guardrails to get up on it. Up. I feel like I'm with like Eric Severide or something here. <laughs> this, this is a grandeur to this show, to the end of the show that John has brought. Mm. It's been magnificent. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, 
cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Let us go to cocktail chatter when uh, you are um, you are <laughs> you doing with this cocktail today. I'm just thinking about cocktails. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. When you're having a, I had a, a michelada. The other day, I'm not, I always mispronounce that. That was the most delicious thing I've had to drink in years. So, what's in that? It's a beer on ice with uh, lemon and hot sauce, and maybe even hot tomato. Sauce. A little bit tomato. Hot it's sauce. Delicious. Oh, it's delicious. Absolutely, it's like a beer Bloody Mary. Wow, I'd like a michelada with some tiramisu and a frittata. <laughs> uh, well, what will you be? What will you be <laughs> chattering? Actually, before we do that, we have um, some listen, great listener chatters. And so I want to talk about one listener chatter from um, we, we're inviting you and we'll continue to invite you to submit your chatters to us about things that you think we should chatter about or things that you're going to be chattering about. And by us, we mean, please tweet, tweet them at Slape Gabfest. Exactly. Nicely and so done, at, we have a great tweet from at Wyke underscore 81 about the college board. I had a conversation with my daughter about this independently. The college board which runs the AP Advanced Placement Programs, is slashing the AP World History curriculum in half. So it is now removing all content from before 1450. So if you're going to take world history and you're going to learn advanced placement world history, it's only going to cover essentially the Renaissance on. So there's no Asian, African, Islamic, or Mesoamerican history before the arrival of Europeans. That's unsettling i think they did the ap did it because it was tons there was the, the curriculum was too vast it was too much to cram into an entire year but maybe they could have bummer. created two tests instead yeah they didn't they did not do that yeah anyway, i prefer thanks, that thank you to wike underscore 81 so send us your chatter tweet us at slate Gabfest. emily what is your chatter we i think correctly decided not to talk about the um, Eagles being disinvited, I guess, to the White House this week, like the latest um, baiting of black athletes by President Trump. But I just loved the Malcolm Jenkins response. He's this incredibly committed criminal justice reformer on the Eagles. And instead of taking the press's questions about the whole White House, like, made-up drama— or created drama. Jenkins had these, you know, big pieces of whiteboard. That's not the right word. Post white poster board with facts about, you know, inequities, unfairnesses in the criminal justice system. And as reporters were barking questions at him, he was showing them on camera the facts and these questions about mass incarceration. And then every time someone continued to bleat out some question that he was not interested in, he would hold up a white poster board that said, you're not listening. It's really great, like minute and a half of video and made my celebrity crush on Malcolm Jenkins, which was already strong, even stronger. All right. Let's see if we can get Emily 
have the chance to meet Malcolm Jenkins. No, I got to meet oh, him did. a couple of months ago. That's so it's like actually an in-person crush. Wow. Yeah. John, what is your chatter? Is it about your celebrity crush? No, I wonder who my celebrity your crush celebrity or crush William names. Howard Taft? Um <laughs> no. Although I, my celebrity crush recently was uh, Jennifer Lawrence and her appearance on the Late Show with Colbert. It's a um, which I didn't see in the moment, but um, it's a wide ranging interview. Um, good choice. Good my, choice. My uh, chatter is about Anthony Ray Hinton, who is many things. So he was he served thirty years in prison for a crime he did not commit. He was on death row, and his um, he has a book that has actually been selected by Oprah as her book club pick. Uh, He was on the show this week, and for somebody who has served 30 years on death row wrongfully, to be in his presence, he is just a shining uh, person, no bitterness and full of forgiveness, and his book is fantastic, and it's, it's not only a great story, which will infuriate you, it will make you enraged it will then build you back up it has great these great one-liners he is kind of a born storyteller um he wrote it he co-wrote it with a woman named uh, laura love harden but you when you talk to him you see what a um storyteller he is his imagination is so acute because for 30 years in prison he basically used his imagination to construct worlds where he could you know basically get through the fact that he was off in solitary confinement and um, that he was in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Anyway, his story about his mother, about his friend Lester, who I won't spoil it for you. It's a great book and a great read, and he's a wonderful person. It's called The Sun Does Shine, and so I recommend it to uh, I recommend it to people, and I recommend you actually watch our conversation with him because we had a whole back half of the show planned, and we just they just the producers and everything just blew it up and just let him keep talking and our conversation keep going. So. Uh, Anthony Ray Hinton. That sounds awesome. Yes. My chatter, speaking of ex-presidents, is about a really sweet little video I saw this week on Deadspin. Dave McKenna is an old friend of mine. Uh, is a I think he's a Deadspin writer. He used to be my colleague at the Washington City Paper. He's just this wonderful, sweet, fascinating uh, sports writer, lovely guy, and he does videos for Deadspin and. Several years ago, back in 2012, his mother died after a terrible illness, and um, he was heartbroken. And he was working one day in a coffee shop in Washington. We'd just gotten back to, he'd just gone back to work after his mother's funeral and was just kind of recovering. And he's sitting there, and as he's sitting there with five other people in the coffee shop, a Secret Service guy comes in and sort of sweeps the room and says, I have to check everyone's bag because the president's coming. And they're like, everyone in the coffee shop's like, what's going on? And then a few minutes later, the president shows up and walks over to Dave, who has been pointed out to him, and spends a minute consoling him and saying, you know, I've lost my mother and I know what it's like. And, you know, I'm I'm here to tell you it will get better. And it was this moment of consolation for Dave. And it had all been mediated because Jay Carney, who was, I guess, then, then Obama's press secretary or communications director or something was a very close friend of Dave McKenna and must have been talking about him to the president. The president decided because he was coming by, he was, he was going to be in the neighborhood where Dave lives. He was just going to drop by and say a few uh, consoling words. And it's a, it's a wonderful little story. And Dave tells it beautifully and with great emotion. So I advise looking at this video on Deadspin uh, by Dave McKenna. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. And please tweet some chatters at us. What would you chatter about? Tweet us at SlateGabFest with your chatter. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. And hopefully we'll see you in Philadelphia on July 18th at the Keswick Theater. Get tickets at Slate.com slash live. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.